The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Revisiting the Role of Genetic Testing in Patients at Risk for Late-Onset Alzheimer's Disease, How Will the Latest Evidence and Evolving Management Paradigm Impact Treatment Decisions for Your Patients? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash AQF860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello. I'm Robert Green, a medical geneticist and professor at Harvard Medical School, and it's my pleasure to chair this peer-review live symposium on revisiting the role of genetic testing in patients at risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease. As you're going to hear, we're joined by a terrific faculty, and we're going to be talking about the genetic marker, APOE, which, as you may know, is a risk marker for the development of Alzheimer's disease and how it maybe have become much more relevant to the new treatments for Alzheimer's disease that are being developed. Uh, today's uh, presentation is being introduced and moderated to some degree by me. You've heard me introduce myself. And um, the other panelists are Liana Apostolova and Stephen Salloway. So the goals for today's workshop, you can read the slide, I won't read it to you, but it's basically to try to understand how APOE genotype does in fact affect the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And as we layer on disease-modifying therapies for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, how does APOE influence the possibility of adverse events? It's going to provide you with some introduction to how to manage these patients, how to educate them, counsel them about the potential benefits and possible risks of both medically-mediated testing and direct-to-consumer testing. And it's going to try to equip you with skills you need to interpret and share these results with your patients and their families in a pretty clear manner. Uh, there's a lot of um, almost superstition around genetic testing, and we're going to try to dispel some of that for you today. We might at the end talk about these three patients, a 65-year-old Asian-American man, no cognitive impairment. He's got a positive family history. In fact, both his sisters are homozygotes for APOE4, meaning they have two copies of the uh, E4 allele. And he wants to undergo a comprehensive evaluation, including APOE testing, because he's worried about Alzheimer's disease. He wants to assess his own risk. The next uh, patient is a 59-year-old black woman. Again, no cognitive impairment. She received direct-to-consumer testing and that revealed that she has two copies of the E4-E4. This, uh, even though she checked the box to say she wanted to learn it, it's uh, upset her and she's anxious about it. And she'd like a little more clarification from you about her risk for AD. And then Evelyn, a 77-year-old white woman, actually has mild cognitive impairment. Uh, she meets criteria for MCI due to Alzheimer's disease uh, after she's had biomarker testing. She's very interested in anti-A-beta monoclonal antibody treatment. And you, the neurologist or primary care doctor, is going to try to order APOE genotype testing so that you have a better handle on the possibility that she's going to get amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, or ARIA. You're going to hear more about all of these from our panelists today. So... Um, our intention uh, throughout this seminar is to try to fill in a few ga uh, gaps that we think most doctors have when they're dealing with this issue and try to basically reinforce uh, some of what you may already know, that E4 genotype is actually the 
strongest genetic risk factor for common late onset Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but at the present time, APOE testing is not recommended without genetic testing. Uh, well, I'm sorry, without genetic counseling. So there's this tension between the availability of APOE and actual official recommendations for using it. And then we know that there's uh, a potential difference in one or two APOE E4 alleles and the use of anti-A-beta antibodies for treatment, and that uh, patients are going to need to be APOE genotype tested prior to initiating treatment with these therapies. And what's really interesting about this is a situation where uh, commerce, in the form of direct-to-consumer genetic testing, has really gotten out way ahead of the medical establishment. So millions of people have already learned their APOE, and uh, we'll talk about what the implications are of that as this enters the more conventional medical workflow. With that, I'd like to turn the uh, podium over to uh, Dr. Liana Apostolova, and uh, we're very excited to hear her speak on um, APOE4, a genetic risk factor for the development of late-onset Alzheimer's disease. Thank you, Dr. Green, for the nice introduction, and thank you all for joining us today. Um, I will take you through the importance of APOE4 for the development of late-onset Alzheimer's disease. I wanted to start uh, with the background of what we know about the genetics of sporadic Alzheimer's disease. It is a really big field, and to date, we only know about 50% of the heritability, and we have defined uh, the genetic risk factors responsible for that. The biggest one is APOE4. And the magnitude of risk that it carries, one can see, is really significant, medium to high for the APOE4 homozygotes and medium for APOE4 heterozygotes. So how are these discoveries made about risk genes? They're made through genome-wide association studies that study cases and controls. So if we look in the cognitively healthy population, we see that the most common genotype is APOE3.3. Um, in 62% of the population. In contrast, the most common phenotype in somebody with Alzheimer's disease, in the population with Alzheimer's disease, is um, a presence of APOE4, with heterozygotes being 43% and homozygotes being close to 15% of individuals. So this means that the frequency of APOE4 is elevated and means that this gene very likely contributes to the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And we can see that in the odds ratios. Having one copy of APOE4 elevates one's risk to two or three, depending on the other allele carried. Um, and having two copies relates 15 times the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease over one's lifetime. Furthermore, APOE4 is also associated with earlier age of onset of Alzheimer's disease. Those that carry one copy uh, develop disease two to five years earlier than non-carriers. And those that carry two copies, they develop symptoms five to ten years earlier than non-carriers. Now, here's a slide of the cumulative incidence of um, Alzheimer's disease uh, symptoms. Uh, in diagnosis based on carrier's status of APOE4 and homozygosity. 
What you see in purple is the whole zygotes of e with E4. Over the lifetime, they have by far the most cases uh, with up to 70% of them developing dementia by age 95, as opposed to the heterozygotes, which are in orange, and the non-carriers in green and blue. The association uh, is also seen with amyloid positivity. Amyloid positivity is seen in individuals with normal cognition for 15 to 20 years before dementia starts. So if we look in those individuals with normal cognition in, in this graph that is on the left, one can see that E4 carriers have by far the greatest proportion of amyloid positivity overall, followed by the heterozygotes and then, of course, by non-carriers. And again, if somebody has MCI, mild cognitive impairment, the likelihood that these individuals are amyloid positive really goes up by the dosage of the APOE4 allele. Now that I've shown you slides that look like a linear increasing trend over uh, the lifetime of individuals in the population, actually the risk of from APOE is nonlinear with most cases developing dementia between the ages of 60 and 75, and those outside of this age range being less frequently APOE4 carriers. So now let's look as uh, to whether men and women have identical risk for acquiring AD. We know that more women have Alzheimer's disease than men, but how does APOE4 also matter? And the answer is yes. If we look at the two lower curves, um, the white circles are men who have one copy of APOE4, and the triangles are women who have copy of APOE4. And in the top curves, the squares are men with two copies of APOE4, and the diamonds are women who are homozygote. In both instances, women have greater odds for having Alzheimer's disease than men, uh, which is further uh, increased by APOE4 genotype, as we can see here. However, if we were to look at ethnicity and race, we see a different picture. And this is really important as we will be talking medications that um, are associated with APOE by virtue of side effects uh, and propensity to such side effects. So in Caucasians, what we see uh, the risk being for, heterozy for heterozygotes is uh, 2.7. And for homozygotes in this study, it was 13. That's the odd ratio of having dementia. Now compare that to Blacks. In Blacks, actually, the APOE4 gene carries much less risk for Alzheimer's disease. In heterozygotes, it's 1, and in homozygotes, it's 5.7. Similarly, in Hispanics, uh, the, the risk is elevated only twice, regardless of how many doses of APOE4 they have. On the opposite end, the Japanese, um, I'm not sure that generalizes to all the Asian population, but in Japan, uh, a homozygote for APOE4 has 33 times the risk of Alzheimer's disease compared to a non-carrier. So let's switch a little bit and talk about mechanism. How does APOE impact Alzheimer's disease pathology? And it works on, on two parts of the Alzheimer's disease pathology pathways. One is, one is the clearance pathway and the other one is the aggregation of A-beta. In terms of clearance, A-beta is produced by cleavage uh, of the uh, amyloid precursor protein molecule. 
And as that happens, um, there are multiple ways our bodies clear a beta. One is through cellular uptake and clearance. Then there are proteases that can degrade the A-beta peptide. Um, there is perivascular drainage and clearance through the blood-brain barrier and potentially also clearance through the lymphatic pathway. And E4 carriers always have poor clearance through all these mechanisms compared to E3 carriers. Furthermore, E4 carriers are more prone to A-beta aggregation where the monomer follows, uh, forms the toxic oligomers, protofibrils, and ultimately deposits in the plaques. Further, the clearance of the plaques by activated microglia is not as efficient in E4 carriers compared to non-carriers. And lastly, and importantly, E4 carriers have more amyloid deposited in the vessel wall, a condition known as cerebral amyloid angiopathy that elevates one's risk for aria, uh, when treated with um, monoclonal antibodies. And Steve Salloway is going to talk a little bit more on that in just a bit. Now, just to review again, multiple ways that APOE4 associates with AD pathology. One is this increased risk of cerebral amyloid angiopathy, but there is also proatherogenic changes in the vessel, so much so that the risk for vascular cognitive impairment in pathologies that lead to dysfunction of the neurovascular unit is also there. Also, APOE is associated with tau pathology in AD. Um, APOE4 carriers have greater tau pathology, have greater synaptic damage, and reduce cerebral glucose metabolism compared to non-carriers. And last but not least, it also increases the risk of dementia in other neurodegenerative conditions such as Lewy body disease, Parkinson's disease, and late with TDP43 pathology. And just to demonstrate for you how uh, the associations with imaging biomarkers and APOE4 genotype look like, in the ADME study, the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, this is some work from my lab, where we were able to show that the association with amyloid, which is the very first sinusoidal graph that starts in the cognitively normal state, down on the x-axis you can see the Alzheimer's disease uh, uh, status of individuals of, of the population, cognitively normal, followed by MCI by dementia, the graphs depict the abnormality in certain imaging biomarkers. The first one is amyloid, second one is tau, followed by glucose, hypometabolism, and lastly, atrophy. So amyloid deposition and APOE are very tightly connected. The effect is robust, and it's seen in the cold sample, but importantly starts in the cognitively normal uh, uh, part of the disease, in the pre-symptomatic stages. Then the second association we see is with tau, and that is also seen early in the cognitively normal stages. Then hypometabolism seems to show its first association in the imaging uh, genetic field in the MCI stage. And lastly, the association with atrophy really seems to appear in the dementia stage of, of Alzheimer's disease. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Salloway. Well, thanks, Liana. Um, and it's good to be speaking with all of you. Um, I'm going to be talking about the 
a impact of ApoE4 carrier status on risk of aria, which Dr. Green mentioned to you and Liana followed up on, in patients who are receiving uh, amyloid-lowering antibodies. Okay, so there are a number of uh, amyloid-lowering antibodies that are in clinical development. By way of disclosure, I have been a principal investigator for our, all the medications I'm going to be talking about and also a consultant to the companies developing these drugs. And there have been major ad advances with this class of medication. And in June of 2021, the FDA granted accelerated approval for aducanumab, an amyloid-lowering antibody. Um, in January of 2023, lecanemab was also approved under the accelerated approval pathway. And this spring, we'll be seeing results from the phase three trial of denanemab, which if positive, will be submitted to the FDA for consideration for approval. Now, this is an evolving field and providers need to become familiar with how, as these medications hopefully are covered and become available in clinical practice, uh, how to use them safely in appropriate patients. So the most important thing is selecting the appropriate patient. And we recommend there is a, a group of experts, which includes Dr. Apostolova, um, which has, which have put together guidelines appropriate use recommendations for aducanumab. We'll be coming out with recommendations soon for lecanumab about how practically to use them uh, in the clinic. Um, and also the FDA has prescribing information for the two drugs that have been approved. Um, so the most important thing is to select patients that conform with the clinical trials, patients who have mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia, who are amyloid positive, this will require amyloid testing currently with PET or CSF. Blood tests, I'll mention at the very end of this talk, are becoming more robust and will soon be more available in the clinic to help to pre-screen for those likely to be amyloid positive. We're also recommending APOE testing because the, the APOE4 allele and especially the number of copies uh, greatly influences, the, as you'll see from the data, the risk of developing this main side effect called aria. And so it's important for patients to know about it and for clinicians so they can manage the aria. This side effect, the aria requires, it shows up on MRI, often it's asymp asymptomatic, and there are uh, regular safety uh, scans, especially early on because aria occur occurs early on with treatment. Now, the role of APOE here, and that's really the focus of uh, today's discussion, is the rate of aria, of both aria-E, which means edema, and aria-H, which means hemorrhagic change, increase with the E4, APOE4 copy number. Uh, symptomatic cases and more serious cases also go up, especially in homozygotes. And so that's why it's so important for patients to know about it and for clinicians to know about it so they can manage it. Um, right now, APOE4 carriers are approved uh, and also recommended for treatment with amyloid lowering antibodies, but they do require more vigilance 
in terms of management of the aria to prevent a severe or serious outcome. And this just shows you the MRI monitoring schedule uh, for uh, aducanumab and lecanemab. MRIs are obtained early on with treatment. Um, and then as treatment progresses during the first year, um, and then whenever symptoms develop, um, unscheduled MRIs would be obtained as well. So it's very important if you're going to consider prescribing this medication or even referring patients for this treatment, knowing what this side effect looks like, what the clinical symptoms are, and how it's managed. So it's very important to know uh, the differential rate uh, of ARIA, especially ARIA-E, which can be, become more symptomatic and clinically uh, difficult to manage by APOE for copy number. So the, for each drug, aducanumab, denanumab, lecanumab, and gantanarumab, uh, it can occur in non-carriers, but at a low rate. It goes up substantially in carriers with heterozygotes being considerably higher than non-carriers, and it goes up substantially again in homozygotes compared to heterozygotes and non-carriers. And that's, we see that consistently across the board uh, with each of these drugs. So it's part of the class, at least the ones that we've studied so far. Um, so that's very important to know what the numbers are so that you can discuss them with patients when they're considering treatment, because we want to weigh risk and benefit. Um, and also to know to be more careful in, in the safety monitoring, especially for E4 homozygotes. And you can see that on this slide with aducanumab, that there's a, just a dramatic increase. More than 66% of those who are E4 homozygotes will develop ARIA. And they're more likely to have recurrence and also more likely to have, even though, even though severe outcomes are infrequent, they can be fatal. They can be really serious. And so, and they're more likely to occur in homozygotes. So it's very important to know this. It, it definitely influences the management uh, and, the, and the decision whether or not to restart treatment once ARIA occurs. It's also important to know about how to rate uh, the severity of the ARIA. So we're talking about, again, ARIA-E first with edema, that those that are in one location or less than five centimeters are considered mild. The current practice is to treat patients who are asymptomatic and have mild radiographic change through that, monitoring with MRI until it resolves. But we usually do not suspend treatment for mild cases that are asymptomatic. When the ARIA becomes more prominent and the moderate in five to 10 centimeter, usually multifocal range or severe, more than 10 centimeters, uh, we suspend treatment and we may decide not to resume treatment depending on the severity of radiographically the symptoms and also the, the APOE4 carrier status and the comorbidities of the patient. Likewise, there's a rating scale for microhemorrhages, which is a common part of ARIA-H. Uh, mild is considered less than four new incident microhemorrhages. Moderate is five to nine, and severe would be 10 or more. And focal siderosis, superficial siderosis, linear areas in the meninges, 
are more suggestive of superlamyloid angiopathy, which Dr. Apostolova talked about. Uh, and we also rate that as well, and that guides our management of ARIA. And this is um, the figure from the appropriate use recommendations for aducanumab, uh, which, has, which were updated. And I think it's very helpful, and it very much mirrors the phase three program for aducanumab and also for lecanumab. That, as I said, if patients are mild and asymptomatic with REAE, we can continue dosing, but monitor carefully with MRI, monthly MRI, until the REAE resolves, which it usually does. Uh, if it's moderate or severe radiographically, we suspend treatment and decide whether or not it's safe uh, after monitoring to go back on uh, treatment. If it's symptomatic, we suspend treatment. And again, depending on the severity of the symptoms, uh, we may hold up on restarting treatment. And there are uh, stopping rules that we take into account for macro hemorrhage, uh, more than one area of superficial siderosis, more than 10 microhemorrhages, more than two episodes of aria, severe symptoms of aria. 70% of, 75% of the time, aria is asymptomatic. It's only detected on the scheduled MRI scan, but symptoms can occur. They're usually vague and nonspecific. But again, there are a handful of cases with each program that are serious, require hospitalization, corticosteroids, can be associated with seizures, and can be fatal. Here's four examples of what uh, REE looks like. Uh, the first case on the bottom row, you see the, uh, the flare uh, sequence prior to treatment. Uh, in the top row, you see after the occurrence of REE, the first case just has a little linear area superficially you have to look carefully to, to detect these. Uh, that would be, uh, if you measure that out, probably a mild area of REE. Case number two, you see really extensive area of edema. Uh, case number three, in between. And case number four, sort of in between, but heading more toward the severe uh, range. Here we see an example of um, two cases. Uh, uh, Okay, two slices in one case uh, before treatment, after ARIA occurs, and then with resolution. And it almost always, not always, but almost always resolves. It's a transient phenomenon. And often patients can go back on treatment if, it, if everything, in, uh, when considering carefully uh, safety factors. REAH, you need a, uh, a sequence a, like the uh, gradient uh, GRE um, or an SWI scan. You would need to do evaluate for REAH for microhemorrhages and superficial siderosis and macrohemorrhage before treatment. So they need a pretreatment MRI. Um, the guidance is not to treat people that have more than four microhemorrhages at baseline. Um, aducanumab did, and uh, lecanumab did not allow for any superficial siderosis in the clinical trial. So if you see that at baseline, that would be concerning about underlying CAA, and that be, may be a reason to exclude the patient from treatment. Here we're showing an example of extensive, only one slice, but you can see uh, numerous microhemorrhages and numerous linear areas of superficial siderosis. 
So this would be a very prominent uh, example of ARIA-H. I mentioned about the more serious cases. They are infrequent. Um, there are so far very few published in the literature. This is one case from Alzheimer's and dementia. There have been some reported in the lay press, uh, but one recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. So it's only a handful of cases so far of the more serious cases that have come into the literature. But this case is, I happen to know the patient who's a neuro, who's published a book about his experience. He's a neurologist who uh, at the time was 65 years old uh, with early uh, MCI, he was still practicing. He um, had uh, directed consumer testing and found out that he uh, was homozygous for E4. And he went into, he went into double-blind treatment with aducanumab, did very well, no symptoms, uh, then went on open label. And early on with open label developed um, became quite symptomatic with headache, confusion, alexia, had evidence of seizures, hypertension, was admitted to the ICU, was treated with high doses of corticosteroids with anticonvulsants. Um, and you can see the evolution of the ARIA changes, uh, ARIA-E, uh, on his flare sequence. And they completely resolved. Even though the case was severe, required hospitalization, uh, he's doing very well, and actually, you know, it, it, he has had scans, amyloid PET scans, that show a decrease in amyloid PET uh, burden following the aria. Uh, so he's fortunate to have had a very good outcome from a serious case of aria. Now, finally, there probably the one of the biggest developments in the Alzheimer field. Um, that we've been seeking for many years is, is the development of plasma assays that predict uh, for amyloid and tau that predict amyloid status in the brain. And we've made dramatic progress, and there are a number of assays um, that a mass spec, a mass, spectog ma <laughs> mass spec, and also uh, immunoassays uh, that are coming into the clinic that have very uh, encouraging. Uh, sensitivities and specificities. And one of these is called the Precivity AD. Now there's one and two uh, assays uh, made by a company called C2N. And that is the first assay is a mass spec assay of a, beta, a ratio of A beta 42 to A beta 40 in the plasma. Also includes a measurement of APOE uh, and a determination of the APOE genotype. They actually measure quantitatively the amount of APOE protein, but they give the patient, they take into account the patient's APOE genotype. And they have an algorithm that has a very high predictive value of whether or not the person would be amyloid positive on a PET scan or on CSF as well. So just be aware that this type of testing is coming into the clinic. It will help us pre-screen who is likely to be good candidate for treatment with an amyloid-lowering antibody. Soon it will be helpful in just making the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And some of these assays include APOE in the algorithm to determine risk. So I will turn the program back over to Dr. Green, who will go into more detail about the disclosure and working with patients about uh, APOE in the clinic. Okay, well, thanks for those two great presentations. 
I'm actually have the fun of being both a neurologist and a medical geneticist. And uh, probably that's just an opportunity to be more confused about all these matters. But I did actually do about 12 years of study on the disclosure of APOE. So I'm going to talk to you about APOE testing, APOE disclosure from that vantage point, realizing that some of my opinions may not be entirely mainstream yet. But at the end, we'll have the other two panelists talk together, and I think you'll get a fairly balanced view of the situation from all three of us. So remember, APOE is a gene, and you have two copies of that gene. And each of those genes has a sort of flavor. It can be E2, E3, or E4. So in the two copies that you have in your body, you have a number of possibilities. It can be 2, 2, 2, 3, 3, 3, 3, 4, 2, 4, and 4, 4. And with that in mind, we divide folks into these inheritance patterns where they don't have any E4s, they have one copy of the E4, or they have two copies of the E4. And as you heard, the two copies of the E4, which is about 2% of the population has, does put you at pretty dramatically increased risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease. Now, this is, this runs through families in a dominant inheritance pattern. Meaning that, of course, if your parent has one copy, you have a 50% chance of inheriting that copy. If your parent has two copies, well, you know you're going to get at least one. And the reason this is important is that when talking about disclosure in families, when we disclose to one individual, we may be inadvertently disclosing to their, let's say, their adult child. So if you disclose to a father, for example, that he's carrying two copies of E4, the adult children sitting in the room with you will know with absolute certainty that they are at least each carrying one copy. And so whether they wanted that information or not, they have received it, and they know that they too are at somewhat increased chance of developing Alzheimer's disease. This is a big deal in genetics where you might be talking about Huntington disease or breast and ovarian cancer predisposition. It turns out in the real world, this is not quite so charged within families, but you should be aware of it as you're talking to families about APOE4 disclosure. Now, you can order APOE in a number of ways. You can order it from a legitimate laboratory, although ironically, at the moment, it costs several hundred dollars from if you order it from a legitimate medical laboratory, and it costs quite a bit less if you order it from a a direct-to-consumer laboratory. And theoretically, you can get APOE genotype through the the, uh, protein, proteotype test, but most of us over the years have been garnering this kind of information from the genotype test or looking directly at the DNA. Now, You've heard of direct-to-consumer genetic testing. It's been out there in the world since 2007. The most popular DTC genetic testing company has sold something like 14 or 15 million kits. And about 70% of the people who purchased those kits actually said yes on the little checkbox, and they received their APOE genotype. And this is notable because it's telling us that in a real-world situation, many people want this information, even when it had no link whatsoever to, to treatment, and that they 
proactively check that checkbox in order to receive it. Given that, it's surprising in some ways that we haven't heard more upset. We haven't heard more people who are anxious, who were distressed, who learned this information and worried about it. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. It definitely does. And, and this lingers with a few people for years. But given the number of people who've received that kind of information, remember about 20, 20 or 22% of people are carrying at least one E4 allele and another 2% are carrying two E4 alleles. It's rather remarkable that this has been out in the wild with millions and millions of people. One of the things the DTC companies have taught us, they've done a very good job of actually offering education about the genotypes. So they'll use uh, infographics like this one here, which is my colleague Scott Roberts offered up from his own, in which they'll sort of compare your risk to someone else's risk. And way back when uh, they launched this many years ago, uh, they even had a little video that I starred in talking about APOE genotype and your the risk that it made. Um, I don't think they show that video anymore, and I I didn't get paid anything for that video, or uh, nor have I ever from uh, direct to consumer companies. Um, the interesting thing about APOE is that, as you're going to hear, both the direct to consumer experience and our NIH supported research studies have suggested that there's very very little in the way of distress, that people seem to self-select. And so the people who want to know this information actually handle it quite well. But that may change when people's motivation for APOE is no longer just, I'm curious, I want to know, tell me. And it now becomes a kind of companion test to the administration of a, a new uh, pharmaceutical. In that scenario, they may not have the same motivation for wanting to know it, and they may, therefore, be more distressed when they learn it. This is a possibility. So it's important to, to sort of review what are the conventional recommendations that have actually been published out there by, by a, a consensus group, uh, in this case, the American College of Medical Genetics, and the uh, National Society of Genetic Counselors, what is the consensus they published about APOE testing? And in 2011, they published these guidelines. You should, you should obtain informed consent. It should only occur in the context of genetic counseling. Uh, patients with cognitive impairment um, should have someone else present. Uh, it should really occur in the context of a neurologic examination and a more medical contextualization. That, of course, doesn't happen with DTC. And uh, you should really assist them. You shouldn't sort of do it and walk out of the room, give them the result and ignore them. You should assist them in understanding it and discuss the potential impact um, and where the results will be kept. Now, at the time these came out, I disagreed with them. And, uh, and this was, uh, I think, 11 years, 11 or 12 years ago. So I still feel that they were overcautious. But I do want to make that point that we're now entering an era where APOE is going to be disclosed for a different reason than it has been over the last 10 years. So, And I'd also like to make the point that genetic counseling doesn't necessarily mean referring them to someone else or to an official genetic counselor. It can mean you, the neurologist, or you, the primary care doctor, 
simply spend a few more minutes touching on these themes, making sure they understand what they're getting into. I really don't think that it's feasible if, if we imagine scaling Alzheimer treatments uh, and family members who are interested in this, it's not going to be necessarily feasible to out-refer people into geneticists or genetic counselors for all the times we need to uh, share this information. As I mentioned, I performed uh, close to 15 years of randomized clinical trials with APOE, and one of the most startling um, uh, findings was that, on the whole, people who want this information adjust to it extremely well. In our uh, 2009 uh, New England Journal of Medicine paper, we demonstrated that there literally was no signal for persistent distress or anxiety or depression. And this was very surprising because there's this strong narrative that you're going to upset people. But in fact, it, uh, it, it's, we don't want to be cavalier about it, but in fact, it does not happen with anything like the frequency that we might have imagined. We also did a series of other trials. The Reveal 2 study compared giving somebody a brochure to full-on genetic counseling. That was the randomization, and folks did just as well. They needed an opportunity to ask questions, but there was no difference between a pretest genetic counseling session and handing them a brochure. In the Reveal 3 study, a little bit less relevant, but also very interesting, um, when we gave people two pieces of information, their APOE for their risk of dementia and their APOE for their increased risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, they actually managed the information even better because they perceived the cardiovascular risk to be more actionable, and it kind of distracted them from the focus on the Alzheimer's risk. And in the Reveal 4 study, a completely separate randomized trial, we did the same thing in patients with mild cognitive impairment because we figured, well, if, if they learn their APOE, they already know they have memory problems, they may really, really be upset. And believe it or not, they were not either. So I don't want to inc encourage anybody to, again, be cavalier with this information, but we really don't have to tiptoe around it. We really don't have to treat it as if it was radioactive. We can, we can be straightforward, talk to patients about whether they want this information, talk to families, and then go on and, and get it for them. There are a few other implications uh, of our reveal study that are kind of interesting. Uh, we did find that people who learned they were E4 positive were close to five times more likely to be ordering online dietary supplements. And as you know, most of those dietary supplements are entirely fraudulent, and some of them may be even, even harmful. So I, I think we need to be aware of that and, and maybe counsel our, our patients not to run out and uh, respond to this by doing um, unsupported, unsupported things. Um, and then, uh, very interestingly, we found that APOE4 carriers were significantly more likely to report purchasing long-term care insurance. Now, um, there, the, there is potential for uh, insurance discrimination when you disclose APOE to someone. Uh, there's federal law that protects against healthcare discrimination, uh, employer discrimination, um, but it does not pr protect against long-term care and life insurance discrimination or underwriting. So another thing to just at least mention to your patients is, have you gotten all the life insurance you want? Were you thinking of getting long-term care insurance? If so, maybe you want to get it before, 
before you order this APOE test. Uh, in a in acute situation with patients with memory problems, maybe this will be a little less relevant. Remember, if they've already been reported in the medical record to have MCI, it doesn't matter. Insurance is going to fasten on that and underwrite them differently anyway. So they've already got MCI. Uh, the jig is up. Informed consent does not have to be a long process. There's a lot of literature out, literature out there, and we all know that decisional capacity might be impaired. Um, there's people who dug way deep into this, and if you really were on the fence about a particular person, are they understanding or not? There's some tools you can use. But in the clinical situation, in the in your examining room, it's much more likely to be your gut feeling. Are they understanding what, what I'm saying? Can they explain it back to me? You know, do, do you want to have, um, are you okay having, uh, this, this genetic test, which will give us a sense of whether you're at increased risk for progressing or having Alzheimer's disease and whether you're at increased risk for having a, um, a bad impact, a bad impact, uh, when you get some of the medication we're considering for you. Similarly, our studies found that the major predictor of anxiety and distress was, wait for it, baseline anxiety and distress. So if you want to predict who's going to get anxious when you, when you disclose APOE, ask them if they're anxious and or observe if they're anxious. And if, if that doesn't satisfy you, and, and, and you're so predisposed, there are, again, very short, very convenient little scales of anxiety that you can use uh, that are in this slide deck. Now, in patients who have no cognitive impairment, but who want to know their APOE, and we know that's a lot of people out there, there's just a little bit of talking you should go through, which, which can fully constitute genetic counseling. You should make sure they understand that it's not deterministic, that it's a predisposition or susceptibility gene. So it's not a sentence. It's not a, a, a uh, it's not a determining factor that they're going to get Alzheimer's disease. You should make sure they understand sort of the difference between one copy and two copies. And uh, you should make sure they understand that the effect of ethnicity is still quite unclear, as was previously discussed. And when you've got the results in your hand and you're giving it to them, Again, it doesn't have to be an elaborate process, but you might just check in and say, have you thought about it? Are you sure you want to receive this? Okay, let's go ahead. And when you disclose it, try to make sure they are understanding what you're saying and that if they do have an emotional response, you're just sensitive to it. You give them the space to express their emotions. And in the rare instance where they might be very upset, you make sure that you either follow up or allow them to uh, be followed up by a, a health professional with psychology. So you can develop your own sort of algorithm for what you actually say to people. Um, these numbers actually aren't as effective as you might imagine. People misunderstand, they mishear, they forget. All they really remember is, oh, I'm at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. So if you want, you don't even have to talk about numbers. But in some of your information-seeking patients, they may want to know, well, how much increased risk am I at? And so you can have a little table like this that uh, helps you 
remember what numbers you might want to discuss with them. 10 to 15% for the most common genotype, E3, E3. Uh, 20 to 25% for the next most common genotype, uh, E3, E4. And 30 to 55% for even the most dangerous genotype, E4, E4. And, and let's zero in on that for a minute. If you're giving somebody this news and you're telling them, yeah, I'm sorry, you're, you're one of the 2% of people who have two copies of the E4 allele, they might think, oh my gosh, I'm definitely going to get it. But no, you can say all that really does is it moves your, your lifetime risk up to 85 uh, in the neighborhood of, of 30 to 55%. You've still got uh, 50, close to a 50% risk that you won't get Alzheimer's disease. And that may be very reassuring as you're, as you're going through this. It helps them understand the, the probabilistic nature of what you're telling them. Um, I think we've heard quite a bit uh, about the um, possibility of ARIA upon starting anti-A beta monoclonal antibodies. And obviously, if that's the context in which you are discussing this with an individual, either cognitively impaired or not, um, then that's part of the disclosure, uh, is that if they are E4, they're going to be at increased risk for uh, this, this adverse side effect. And then um, just a quick review that there's more than E4, of course, that influences whether you're going to develop Alzheimer's or not. And family history, uh, completely separate from uh, E4 status, uh, can influence that. Um, obviously, older age. Uh, female patients are more likely than males. Uh, people who have um, more years of education appear to be slightly protected. A good cardiovascular health can be protective. And there is a perception and possibly epidemiology evidence that people who are socially and mentally stimulated uh, may be partially protected. Of course, in epidemiology, it's hard to distinguish cause and effect from association. At this point, let's bring the other panelists back in, and let's talk about those um, individual patients exemplars that we mentioned at the very beginning. And uh, Steve and Leon, I'd love to... Um, uh, sort of make this a really a conversational discussion as we, as we go over them. So remember the three scenarios. The first was a patient without cognitive impairment who just was, wanted to learn, uh, their own APOE status. The second was somebody who had already gone through uh, a direct consumer genetic test and came to you with some anxiety. And the third one was a patient with MCI or early stage dementia and, uh, who needed APOE genetic testing uh, as they started antiantibody, um, anti, anti-amyloid beta antibody treatment. So, um, this first one, I won't, I won't go and read it again, but I think I just summarized it. Um, Steve, Liana, what, how comfortable do you feel, uh, now that we've talked about this and based on your own clinical experiences, talking to this patient who is curious about learning their own AP, APOE? Would you recommend it? Would you deter it? Uh, what would you say to them? Well, I, I could start first. Um, first of all, I, I agree, uh, Robert, with what you've said about your approach. Uh, we've uh, had a similar experience, and we've been doing APOE testing and disclosure in the memory clinic for patients asymptomatic and symptomatic for more than 10 years, hundreds, probably thousands of people. And uh, we've studied it as well, and it has gone extremely well. 
Um, so this, in my opinion, you know, my personal opinion, um, this is important health information. I'm sure you agree with that. Uh, it, about their potential risk of a serious uh, neurologic condition. Um, they have every right to learn it um, if they seek it. Uh, and my, it would be important, as you said, I think you laid it out very well. Uh, is he psychologically prepared to learn the information? So inquiring about that, um, his inquiring about his understanding and educating him about what the tests might potentially mean. Obviously, there's Alzheimer's in the family. There are uh, um, two uh, siblings who are uh, homozygous free for. Um, and so he's going to be, he's reasonably concerned. I think that, uh, I think it mentions in here one of the bullet points that he wants to have additional testing. So it's not just APOE. He wants to find out about other risks. Do I, am I building up amyloid plaques? Do I have other uh, changes on my MRI or cognitive testing. So it's more complicated. And often that's increasingly, that's what we're going to be faced with is helping inform patients about their current cognitive health, their brain health and their future risk. And so I think this is an excellent example. I'm not a big fan of direct to consumer. I think it's very helpful to have a context and understanding to be able to ask questions. I think that um, the main reason I agree, and you made this, you emphasized this, the main reason why we've, there have been so few negative reactions is that this is self-selection. So people have come forward that want to learn this either through direct to consumer or in a, in a clinic. And they've already sort of worked through that process themselves. And there are many other people out there that either are you know, ambivalent or very concerned and would be quite anxious about it. So. Uh, again, he falls in that first group that wants to be proactive, and um, I think he would be a good candidate for finding out from what we know so far. Liana, um, we should we should move on quickly to the other uh, the others, but just in reaction to what I said and Steve said, any any disagreement, anything you would uh, you'd like to highlight uh, that might be uh, in contrast to what we suggested? Well, my approach is slightly different. Uh, I don't uh, necessarily advocate for people to get APOE4 genotyping done while they're cognitively normal is really, there is no action that would result from having this knowledge. And also because there could be disadvantages in terms of life insurance and long-term care planning. So I would, with this gentleman, I would probably probe a bit more and uh, understand why he needs to, why he wants to know, how would he um, take measure, what kind of measures is he going to take after learning the information and also point out how you very elegantly said it, Robert, that we shouldn't probably say, oh, a homozygote has 15 times increased risk. We rather should say the lifetime, um, occurrence of dementia in APOE for homozygote is 30 to 55%. So there is still a pretty big likelihood that even if you too carry two APOE4 copies, you might not develop dementia. So this would be my approach. Thanks. And, you know, you bring up a great point, uh, a term that people might hear uh, when uh, patients are curious about this is personal utility. So Leanna points out that there's no obvious clinical utility at the moment, but then it becomes a question of autonomy 
does this gentleman have the right to, to learn about his own risk factors? And the zeitgeist has really been changing over the last 20 years on that. And most people would say yes, but, but I think even the conservative folks would, would, um, carry the same caveats that you did, Liana, in terms of possibly steering him away from it, particularly if he came across as a very anxious individual. Let's go on to the next uh, patient. Uh, remember, she was a 59-year-old African-American woman, and she had already gone out there and gotten her direct-to-consumer genetic test, and it, it revealed to her that she was an APOE4 homozygote. Now, uh, once you start, Liana, and and uh, tell me what you do in this situation, because she wants to speak to someone about what her results mean for her future. And the cat's out of the bag, uh, so to speak. So, um, yeah, very interesting scenario. I've encountered it a few times. And again, I think we just discussed, like with the gentleman before, that presenting, reassuring the patient that there is no guarantee this is not a deterministic gene. It's not one of the personnelin one mutation, two mutation, or APP genes. When you have a copy, you're guaranteed to develop dementia. This is not the case. This elevates the risk. And even so, not everybody that has even two copies of APRI4 develops dementia in their lifetime. Thanks. And Steve, would you, would you make any other point toward this patient? Yeah. So I think um, it, this patient now is looking for uh, guidance uh, and counseling about what this information means. And so I think trying to help her understand her this new medical information, put it into context. Um, we, Liana talked about that African-Americans have a lower incidence of dementia with uh, APOE4 homozygosity. So tell her that information as well. Um, and then it may be an opportunity for counseling her about, uh, well, she may need more support. If she really is anxious and depressed, then making, as you said, making the appropriate referral, either providing the support uh, yourself or making the appropriate referral to make sure she gets the help she needs. But also because she's at an increased risk of Alzheimer's, there may be lifestyle or uh, modifications in her health care that would promote brain health for her. So this may be an opportunity for her to take, uh, act, may be actionable. And there may be actually clinical trials that that's right. Eligible. That's right. That's Those are great points you both made. I would agree 100% with them. I guess the only other thing I might add is is just to help her uh, appreciate that um, there are particular trials that she could she could go into, and that there are other techniques that could monitor her. So, so if she's very anxious, she might be reassured if she got neuropsychological testing, let's say yearly for the next couple of years, and did not see any decline. Um, of course, <laughs> that could backfire because she might actually see decline. Well, actually, in this case, I often recommend observational studies. If they're not inclined to go into clinical trials, would definitely exist for E4 homozygote. Um, then an observational study where detailed testing is performed once a year, and they can follow and get ahead of any decline. So yes, she might be declining, but she would be able to start medication as early as possible. So there is that benefit of participating in observational research for an individual like this. Great point. And Liana, would that be like um, one of the Alzheimer's centers where she could be part of the registry, for example? Correct. Yes, yes. That's what I had in mind. Yeah, we do have an Alzheimer's disease research center and we do diligent, uh, detailed workup year after year on all participants. 
And then our last patient has to do with a 77-year-old woman who um, we should do APOE testing in order to inform some of the treatment decision-making. And you guys both spoke very eloquently about this. So maybe, Steve, uh, start us off. And, and uh, what, what sort of information about APOE does this patient need? And what are the key points to discuss with her and, and with her family? Well, I think increasingly we're going to be encountering, pa- encountering patients like this in, clinic- in clinical practice. So someone who is potentially a candidate for disease-modifying therapy and amyloid-lowering therapy does she meet the criteria? So starting off, uh, is she the right age? Is she the right uh, degree of cognitive impairment, the right stage of Alzheimer's disease? In this case, she has a MOCA of 21 out of 30, so probably she is in an earlier stage of Alzheimer's. There are no MRI exclusions. Um, she has already had CSF testing, so the amyloid confirmation has been obtained. So she, it looks like she be a good candidate. She's the appropriate uh, stage and uh, a patient uh, for amyloid lowering treatment. So now APOE becomes important because it tells us about her potential risk of having ARIA, and she can weigh that against the potential benefit that the medicine might bring. Um, and again, we would in- inquire about reading her readiness psychologically to learn this information. And again, and you mentioned it briefly, but we didn't talk about this so much yet about the impact uh, on her family uh, because uh, her children are now aware that, or they may be aware that she has early Alzheimer's and um, and now there, there may be more genetic information that could affect their risk as well. In fact, this slide says that she's there uh, with her daughter. And so... Um, uh, it probably is worth mentioning to her daughter that if we sending APOE on the mother uh, and we do find out that it's 4-4, uh, daughter will um, have to be okay with the knowledge that she herself will then be an obligate carrier of at least one E4. And is she okay with that? Not that she would not do it if the daughter said, wait, but um, it's probably better to prep her rather than let her discover it on her own in some way. Leanna, anything to add to this one? No, actually, uh, no, Steve covered it all, and this would be a good candidate for treatment. But, oh, one thing to add is that we offer APOE, I would be offering APOE genotyping to patients who are considering um, monoclonal antibodies. But, of course, it's their decision. If they don't want the information, they can decline, although my advice would be to get it so we can get a good risk-benefit ratio. So let me drill down on that just a second. Uh, So if people want these medications, but they decline APOE testing um, in the current protocols, it's okay to continue with the medication? I would say yes. It's for their own benefit to have that knowledge. I don't think we should mandate APOE testing. We should recommend it strongly. So far, nobody has declined when I've offered it presented the rationale, but who knows? There might be some people that don't want to know. It, it's a great question um, because I think to give fully informed consent for this new treatment, they really need to know the APOE status and to manage it most effectively uh, clinically, the clinician needs to know. And I've only encountered this so far one time uh, where a patient wanted treatment knew they were amyloid positive and did not want to have APOE testing. And I said, well, we require APOE testing. 
And if you're not psychologically prepared to, to learn the information, we won't tell you. And, but I need to know it to manage your care, your care. And she said, assume, I'm going to assume that I'm at the highest risk. I just don't, I just don't want to confirm it one way or the other. And, and so we've only encountered it once. Just in terms of take home points, then, um, just I think one of the take homes from this whole seminar is that the E4 can be disclosed with minimum risk that's psychological in and of itself, but that it does now increase the risk for ARIA E and ARIA H. And the treatment implications are that the E4 individuals, people carrying one or two copies of the E4, certainly not a contraindication. But the recommendations for vigilance and for follow-up and for taking complaints like headaches seriously are going to vary and are going to help us as the clinicians do a better job of monitoring. Thank you so much for these amazing talks today. Uh, So thank you very much on behalf of all of us. We really appreciate you watching. Good night. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AQF860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.